Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Okay, so hello and welcome to another session of the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Julie Paquette, and I'll be your co-host for this session. I'm very happy to be here today with Leslie Booker. Welcome, Booker. Hi, I'm happy to be here with you too. (laughs) So thank you so much for being part of the summit. Um, I'm going to read your bio to familiarize our audience just with your background and your history. Um, And then we can jump right in. All right. So Booker is a Buddhist meditation teacher, writer, and lover of liberation. She shared the practices of yoga and mindfulness with children who have been incarcerated in juvenile facilities in Rikers Island. The gifts from this work have allowed Booker to show up with a fierce heart to cultivate a space of belonging. She is the co-author of Best Practices for Yoga in a Criminal Justice Setting, a contributor to Georgetown Law's report on gender trauma, and contributed to Sharon Salzberg's book, Happiness at Work. She is the co-founder of the Yoga Service Council at Omega Institute in the meditation working group of Occupy Wall Street. In 2020, she was invited to be a Sojourner Truth Leadership Fellow through the Auburn Seminary, graduated from Spirit Rock's four-year retreat teacher training, and was voted by her peers as one of the 12 powerful women in the mindfulness movement. It was a a big year, 2020. (laughs) Congratulations on that. Thank you. (laughs) It's it's quite a bio. So I think think that maybe let me start with this question. So with with all this varied experience and and your path um, that's sort of been changing and shifting, I'm wondering in terms of working with youth and working with those that were incarcerated, what inspired you on your path? Who and what? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, It actually started when I was nine years old um, to really, uh, my family and I have been living in Japan um, up until I was nine years old. And so when we moved back to America, I had never seen folks who were experiencing homelessness. And I remember driving in the backseat of my parents' yellow Volvo through Washington, D.C., and um, and seeing folks experiencing homelessness and being so moved, being so upset and confused on what's going on. And, you know, I talked to my parents about it. Even as a nine-year-old, I could tell that people were unwell, that they were sick, that they weren't able to care for themselves. And so I asked my parents what was going on, and we had this great conversation about it. And uh, and I was like, cool, so what do we do about it? <laughs> you know, it wasn't enough for me just to understand that people were, you know, were vulnerable because they um, had trauma from being Vietnam War veterans or that they were living with addiction or that there's mental health issues. I was like, okay, now what do we do about it? And as a nine-year-old, I felt so um, just impotent. I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have the bandwidth. I, I didn't know what to do about this. 
And so at that point, I realized that what I wanted to do when I grew up was to be in a position where I could walk next to folks who were historically not seen, not witnessed, not appreciated, not valued in our world. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, I didn't know about being a social worker. I didn't know about, you know, careers that could lead me to that kind of um, relational path. So when adults would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I wanted to be a professional volunteer. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, clearly it's not a real job that can help you to, to do this work. And, um, and so when I was around 18, 19, I started going to protest in Washington, D.C. and sort of getting involved with activism and almost immediately burned myself out because I was running around with my mouth wide open, <laughs> trying to shut down everyone and shame everyone who didn't believe what I believed. But I also had my ears and my eyes shut. And so I wasn't willing to hear anyone else's side. And so that kind of fire and energy and anger and rage just immediately burned me out. I didn't have a support system around me. Um, I didn't have uh, guidance, you know, from elders around um, how to show up and not burn yourself up in those spaces. So I decided to run away to New York and join the fashion industry. And, um, and I was so surprised to find the same thing there. There's still a lot of suffering. Um, a lot of people who were not seen in their own particular way. They were just seen as a coat hanger, not a person that had any strong emotions or preferences or their own traumas. And I was thinking, wow, this is happening here too. So what's happening? So I got really curious about suffering, the end of suffering, which led me to yoga and, and Buddhist meditation. Yeah. And, uh, What got me to teaching uh, yoga and mindfulness to young folks is um, I was living in New York and everyone around me was somehow involved with Lineage Project. It was just like the water I was swimming in. And Lineage Project is an amazing organization that's been teaching mindfulness and yoga to incarcerated and system-involved youth in New York City since 1998. And at this point in my life, everyone around me was involved with Lineage Project. And they kept saying, you should really be a teacher. You should really be a teacher. And we need more Black women. And I was like, well, I don't teach yoga and I hate teenagers. So that doesn't really work (laughs) for, you know. And there was something as I was deepening in my practice There was something in there, you know, I was learning how to alleviate suffering in my own personal life. So why not see if I could offer some guidance and support to young people? Mm. And so eventually um, I got my yoga teacher training certification and I joined Lineage Project and I stayed with them for 10 years, um, eventually becoming the director of teacher trainings um, and really bringing in those conversations around privilege and access and trauma and positionality and really the importance of doing our own work before we stepped in front of a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that point, I really thought that being 
um, another black person was enough. And when I got in front of these kids, I realized that we had such a different background and experience and they didn't trust me. Mm -hmm. And so I really had to take a big step back and do my own work and look at my own privilege and my own access points and how that was impacting the way that I showed up with them. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of my, my backstory. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, it's so interesting to me. You said something really fascinating towards the end about kind of just feeling like there was some commonality just by who you were showing up and how you quickly learned that there wasn't like this initial trust or there was something, um, something about your life that was different that, you know, there, there wasn't this, um, instant connection, right? And so you you mentioned forming the trust and deepening in practice and doing your own work. And so I'm I'm curious what that was for you that that developing what it took to sort of develop that trust um with those youth um in those situations that maybe wasn't kind of an instant connection. What helped you to develop that trust and what kept you going with it? Mm. Yeah, so this was, you know, 2006, so this is quite a long time ago, and we weren't talking about equity and trauma in the way that we are now. We weren't talking about, um, you know, creating spaces for belonging. And so even living in this skin and this body, um, I thought, tomato, tomato, you're black, I'm black, you know, what, what's the big deal? And I realized that because I came from a different background, a a different upbringing, um, that we didn't have a shared lived experience. And I think that folks I was working with as well, you know, we didn't have that that understanding of how different, you know, our experiences were. And I knew that if I showed up with my heart, Um, if I didn't, if I left the ego behind, left behind what I thought the practice should look like, how I should show up, I I let go of being the one who was, um, had all the answers. Mm. And so, you know, we had a plan, you know, always going with with a, you know, a tool belt, (laughs) you know, full of all the things and also be willing to pause when something comes up. When a kid is um, is sharing some wisdom, mm-hmm. to pause and to turn towards that, you know, noticing if someone is, um, you know, is really into like the proper posture for the body and for meditation, and I realized that, um, you know we didn't have all the things that we needed in jails. We had nothing actually in jails to, you know, the right props and stuff to create, um, you know, the kind of support that I wanted them to have. And so we, we learned to get really creative. I learned to watch them and to notice, Oh, this is a comfortable way that everyone seems to be sitting. So why don't I just adopt, you know, that way of sitting as opposed to forcing them into the way that I wanted them to sit. And so, um, also, even though we have this, you know, four or five part um, format of the way that the class was supposed to run, if we got, if something happened in that first place, if the conversation was really alive and juicy and there's a lot of inquiry, then that was yoga that day. 
then that was our mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't about teaching these kids to wrap their leg around the back of their neck. Mm-hmm. It was about um, inspiring them to reclaim their humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, working in jails, everything about that environment is meant to rip away your humanity, to make you feel, um, you know, like a caged animal, Mm -hmm. to take away your autonomy, to make you believe that you are not free, when in reality, um, you know, their hearts and minds could be free, even though they were locked up in jail. And so that became even more important to me, Mm -hmm. is being in these conversations, listening deeply, being open with my heart, being inquisitive you know, asking questions, um, being able to laugh at myself when I said something silly or I get my right and my left mixed up, which I still do, or I call my, I call my foot, my hand or my hand, my foot, you know, like to be able just to find a way to laugh at my, myself and to bring joy into this, because if there's no joy, then what are we doing? You know? Yeah. And so, you know, just the reminders to keep my heart open was huge. And sometimes it it wasn't possible to keep my heart open. Um, You know, I was, I've worked with vulnerable populations for um, over 12 years in New York. So not only working with incarcerated youth, but also folks who are experiencing homelessness, folks who are living with HIV and AIDS, um, folks who are living with addiction. and going into their environments to where they were. And um, even though I was able to leave at the end of the time I was teaching, go back to my home, it doesn't mean that I didn't carry some of that with me. Mm-hmm. And so it was so important for me to really learn how to take care of myself when I needed to, to take a month off from teaching and replenish myself. It is so important for us to drink as we pour. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who love to, to serve, to, uh, to show up, to say, yes, of course, I can do that. Sometimes we keep saying, yes, yes, yes. And the next thing we know, there's, there's nothing left for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important for me um, to learn to drink as I pour, to take time off, to go sit retreats, to be inspired. Um, to be in nature. Mm-hmm. So that's what really supported me and, and, and to keep doing this work. And also to reach out to my colleagues, you know, the folks that I was co-teaching with, the organization that I work with, the people that I was training. It was just so important to keep um, these conversations flowing of not only what brings us joy around this work, but what's hard. Mm. And and what we um, know, so we would share with each other what we were learning about self-care, about self-preservation. And it was so helpful to remember that I wasn't alone, that it wasn't a personal failing if I was feeling overwhelmed or burned out. Um, of course I was, you know, I was a human. And, you know, at one point, you know, this was my full-time job. I was doing this, you know, five days a week. Um, and so uh, just really important to remember to to always lean on people. 
mm-hmm. to not to not be a hero, <laughs> you know, but to remember that uh, sometimes we need breaks, even those that that don these superhero capes, you know, that sometimes we need to like take them off and rest and to use them as a blanket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So 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 important, right? So important in this in doing any work maybe in particular in doing this work, but, but you mentioned so many things in that with the, the letting go of ego and, and the letting go of a specific plan, especially when it comes to youth or when it comes to working with those that are incarcerated, coming in with such a specific plan and being able to let that go, right? This whole aspect of letting go, letting go of the ego, letting go of a hardcore plan that maybe is not what the group is calling for in that particular day or that particular instance. And then having a community that you can actually be with and and share in with about what you're experiencing, being real with um, in that whole taking care of self, right? This, This knowing that this is an act of love rather than selfishness, just, just taking care of self to be able to be there fully for others. Um, so I feel like you said so many gems within that and in doing this this work. Um, and what what helps people to keep going in some senses, right? To not yeah. get fully burnt out or to bring you back after after those helpful breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to clarify something because when you hear people say that a lot, just let it go, just let it go. And I want to be really, really clear about what I mean when I say that, because when we say just let it go, it, there's a lot of like spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. and that thing. It's when you say just let it go, it's not acknowledging the harm that people live with on, on an everyday basis. We can't let go of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. We can't let go of the fact that, you know, police are constantly, you know, in our communities, policing our neighborhoods, policing our bodies. So when I say letting go, what I'm speaking about um, in in the Pali language, the language spoke by the Buddha, was this, this notion of nekama, of renunciation. Mm-hmm. And so what this means is it's made up of two words, of ne and kama. So one is to 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 leave, but then the second word kama means to go towards. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm not just letting go. It's more of a shedding, a shedding of identity, a shedding of what this should be like so that in, so that I'm in, in able to move towards what actually needs to um, be known, to be shared, to be witnessed. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's so letting go of my ego so that I can go and be present to what be present with what is actually happening mm-hmm. in real time. Just want mm-hmm. to clarify that because I think that's a very different thing than just let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. That it, that's such a um, it is such a clarifying way because I I do feel like we get into that like that's oh, just easy. Let it go. That's fine. And yeah, I think the way that you describe it is so brilliant. And there's more to it. It's it's we can't ignore right. Letting go is not ignoring. It's yeah opening space to really 
maybe see things a little bit more clearly. Yes, really, you know, it's, it's moving to, it's going towards, it's going into the fire, like Abaya, mm. right? We go directly mm-hmm. into the fire. We don't go around it. We don't go behind it. We go directly in. Mm. And that is, and when we are able to do that, that's how we really begin to cultivate deeper relationship with our kids. That's how we um, cultivate trust. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're willing to just to, to stop the record and to be like, all right, what's actually happening right now? And it also allows them to see how our practice can actually support us in those moments. Mm-hmm. If we can let go and turn towards them and offer some guidance or some support, some support based on our practice, that's when it really comes alive. Mm. And that's when we really get buy-in from the people that we are sharing these practices with. Mm. This is when they're like, oh, now I get it. Because mm. we can explain all day long what yoga and what mindfulness is and how it's going to be good for you. But it's not until they they experience it in real time that they can really and truly understand it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the ability to to experience whatever is in front of you, whatever's arising, right? It's not just this feel good or this it's it's the capacity to see what's truly there and it's not always pleasant. Yeah. 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 And and we can hold it all, right? Mm-hmm. If we can clear the dust out of our eyes and see things clearly and remember that things are, they're not perfect, they're not permanent, mm-hmm. um, and they're not personal, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And being able to show that to young people is, is, is so liberating. It can be so liberating for their experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, the the liberation, the liberating piece that you mentioned, and you mentioned sort of when we were speaking earlier about freedom, um, mm. and and so you you had actually brought up the quote, the function of freedom is to free somebody else, Toni Morrison. So I'm I'm curious um, as we kind of talk about liberation and and freedom, I'm curious what that means for you um, in terms of yourself and your work with youth and youth that are incarcerated and people that oftentimes don't feel like they have freedom. Yeah, you know, growing up, um, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., and growing up in the in a Black Baptist church and growing up with, with my Black family, it was all about... Um, never leaving anyone behind. You know, if someone's not doing well, we don't kick them out of the family. We we still hold on to them. We still include them. They still belong to us. And I find that sometimes in dominant culture, when someone makes a mistake, they are pushed away. They are shunned. They are kicked out. Mm-hmm. And so I learned that if I'm doing well in my life, if I'm feeling a sense of freedom, if if I have abundance, that is not just mine and mine alone. Mm -hmm. I got that because someone reached down and they, they pulled me up. 
you know, that expression, you know, just pull yourself up by your, by your bootstraps. And I'm always like, but what if you don't have boots? <laughs> you know, if you don't have boots, you don't have bootstraps to pull yourself up by, you know? And so I kind of think of it like in kind of like a stick figure sort of thing. Like my hand is holding onto someone's hand who came before me, who's lifting me up. This other hand is reaching down and pulling the next person up. And so if I had figured out how to have a sense of freedom in my body and my lived experience, then it's my responsibility to share that with another person and support them in finding their own freedom. So yes, the function of freedom is to share freedom, to show someone their freedom what's possible. What's up? for you what's what's helpful in in showing people their own freedom right when people are feeling like they can't see it or it's it's so out of their reach how how do you show others that that freedom you know i think for so many people especially our young people when they are told that you're going to be just like your dad. You're going to end up in jail just like your dad. I heard that from so many of the young boys and you know that I worked with over the years and they had given up. They're like, well, this is my destiny. This is what I was told I was always going to be. And look, here I am. I'm 12 years old and I'm already here. And so there's something about reminding them of um, the fact that they have choice. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, like you made a mistake. And, and maybe one like step back from that because it is complicated because, you know, some of the young people that I worked with were involved um, with gangs mm-hmm. and they got involved with gangs because they were looking for family. They were looking for a sense of belonging. They were looking for protection because they weren't protected in their family of origin. And unfortunately, um, you know, um, a lot of the gangs do engage in illegal activity in order to make money. You know, um, a lot of these kids are 10, 11, 12 years old. They're actually not old enough to legally have a job and they don't have that kind of support system in their home or in their communities. Um, you know, I think it costs something like $250,000 a year to incarcerate one child. What if we took that money and invested it into the communities they live in? Mm-hmm. Instead, of, instead of, you know, policing these communities, why don't we create an environment where they can go after school when they're bored, when they're lonely, when they have nothing to do, when they're hungry? Mm-hmm. You know, so first of all, I think it's, you know, society's... Um, responsibility um, that they created this mess of children that are not supported and cared for. And I think that they need to clean up their mess. <laughs> and, and instead of punishing the children who are just seeking out a way to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what your initial question was. I went off on a, <laughs> on my little soapbox there, but <laughs> Well, I had asked about the how. How do you help? How do you model that? How do you help others to get in touch with um, being free. Yeah. So you know, yeah. we remind them of their of their wisdom. Mm. 
we remind them of their intuition, of their wisdom, of, um, you know, I remember talking to a kid once and um, we, I was teaching him meditation for the first time, doing a really simple, just watching the breath as it breathes itself out, following that breath and knowing the breath as it breathes, you know, itself in and out and very simple breath meditation. So when we were done, I was like, how was that experience? And the kid said, man, like, you know, it felt like I got high. You know, that's what it feels like after I smoke a blunt. And I said, well, tell me about smoking a blunt. Like, how does it feel? And, and why do you do it? And what's the impact of it? And he says, whenever I'm stressed out, I go someplace by myself and I light up. And when I do, it gives me a chance to really take a big in-breath and take a big out breath as I blow the smoke out. And when I'm done smoking, you know, I feel like there's clarity. And what I was so upset about, like I've shed, I realized that it's not as important anymore. And so I said, so intuitively, you've already practicing meditation this whole time, except you didn't know about meditation, but what you knew about was smoking blunts. But it was the same thing. It was the same. It was, you're doing the same thing for the same, you know, for the same, um, you know, end game. And so it was just so fun to show him. He knew that when he felt stress, he knew what stress felt like in his body. He knew that he needed to go away to not be around other people, but to go and have some downtime. He knew that he needed space to kind of gather his thoughts so he could respond instead of react. And he knew that when he took that time, that he reclaimed his dignity, right? That he was now back in control of his actions. And so being able to know my practice well enough to be able to see the practice within him was one way that we can really reflect back the wisdom that these kids already have. Mm-hmm. Their intuition, their wisdom is already there. It's just not typically reflected back to them in the environments that they're living in. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's being fed to you in the sense you're just facilitating the, feed, the, the reflection for them to hear their own wisdom. Yeah. And we have to truly see it. You know, it's not just, it's not just lip service. We have to truly see and feel and believe in them Mm. in order to to do this work, in order to see their goal, in order to see their wisdom. We have to truly, truly feel it in our gut and in our hearts. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I want to ask you maybe maybe one last question. Um, and, and you had wrote to us, at this stage of my life, I'm really interested in writing a love letter to my younger activist yoga teacher and mindfulness teacher and sharing it out. So I'm, I'm wondering if you would be um, okay with sharing maybe a, a little bit of that, that letter with us, something that might be helpful um maybe to others that are interested in in doing this work in working with with youth and working with those that are incarcerated 
um, your love letter to yourself, <laughs> how it can inspire us all. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm co-writing a book with a bunch of friends that will come out hopefully sometime next year called No Justice, No Peace. I'm co-writing this with Hala Quarry and Dr. Sarah King and Jacoby Ballard and Carrie Kelly. And it's been put together by Tessa Hicks-Peterson. And as I've been trying to figure out what my chapter looks like, I'm like, oh, I, I think it needs to be a love letter. I think it needs, to, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak to people who are, 20, 30 years into this work, but I want to speak to people who are in those first few years who are trying to figure out, trying to navigate it, because it can be really confusing when we come in. And we come in thinking that we have to know all the answers, that we have to do everything exactly right, that we're not allowed to make mistakes, that we're not allowed to get burnt out and tired, and none of those things are true. <laughs> None of those things are true. Um, you know, early on in my teaching with Lineage Project, someone shared a quote with me from Audre Lorde, who is a great writer, poet, activist. And she says, caring for myself is not self-preservation. Wait, hang on. Caring for myself is not self-indulgent. Hang on. <laughs> it is, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, hang on. It changed everything because it wasn't about getting a mani and a petty and getting a massage, though I also very much enjoy those things. <laughs> but it really was, it really was like this radical act to say, hang on, like for me to show up with my joy and my energy and my love. I have to be a 100% uh, full human, mm-hmm. you know, it can't show up, you know, half broken. I need to show up in a way that I am feeling like I have something to offer, that my shoulders are wide enough to handle whatever is coming to me that day. And sometimes I would show up and within minutes, you know, um, there'd be like 20 kids on top of one kid in this huge fight, you know, and then I have to teach yoga after that. Or sometimes I would show up and a kid would be really angry. And then after chatting for a few minutes, I would realize, Oh, their parent didn't show up for, for visitation again, mm-hmm. you know? And so if I come, if I show up and I'm not resourced, I'm going to get irritated. I'm going to get agitated. I'm going to be like, why can't you all get it together? instead of taking a moment and being like I wonder what else is going on here Mm -hmm. I wonder what else is happening and being able to have the capacity of my heart to lean in and say you know dear one I'm noticing that you seem a little agitated today like what's going on and then to see if I can incorporate that into the teaching that day Mm -hmm. you know And so, um, yes, it's a part of my love letter is telling people that we don't have to be perfect, Mm -hmm. that we're human, that it's okay to take a break. It doesn't make you um, less down with the cause. It doesn't make you less committed to your work. Mm -hmm. Um, Continue to study, continue to practice, continue to go on retreats. 
and continue to lean on other people. Like you're not alone in this. You don't have to figure this out by yourself. Always have mentorship. Mm-hmm. Always have someone who knows what you're going through, who has been in your shoes before, who has a couple of years of, of wisdom that they, you know, um, more than you do, someone that can show you the path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was reading somewhere around the civil rights movement and there would be elder women and before like the young men would go out for protests, they would look at them. And if they were too agitated, too angry, they would say, today is not is not the day for you. Mm-hmm. And they would ask them to go home and to really ground back on themselves before they showed up to the next protest. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want them showing up with a hot head and being, you know, um, too provocative. They needed them to stay for the fight. And I thought that was such a beautiful, like, little-known story in the civil rights and so it's important for all of us the work that we're doing is is hard and it's heartbreaking Mm. and so we need someone that we can lean on that we can cry to that we can share what's happening and so that we can release that Mm. and and start again Mm. or take a break or find another way of doing this work so that's the beginning of my love letter to oh. myself, <laughs> to my younger self. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'd, I'd like to actually hear the full paragraph or the full story at some point when this, this all comes into fruition. Yes, <laughs> me too. I'd love to know what this, <laughs> what this chapter in the book looks like, but yeah, but we'll find out in 2023 at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I am wondering if there is anything else, um, that you want to share with those listening. Um, if there's any invite, any additional advice or inspiration, um, just before we wrap Mm -hmm. Keep going, you know, just keep going and keep educating yourself. When I started doing this work, you know, like I said earlier, we weren't talking about, um, you know, equity. We weren't talking about positionality and privilege and access. Um, we weren't talking about trauma. It was a brand new topic. And, and I knew that there was something important in there. And so I began just having really awkward conversations in my trainings. And I said, this is going to be weird. It's going to be awkward, but this feels really important. Mm -hmm. And then I was so happy when people began to do more research and there were more, you know, studies that I could reach back to, to have more, you know, more, more meat to lean on. Um, And there are things that, um, you know, that are not on top of my heart right now, on top of my mind right now, but are probably really important things that we need to continue to bring into our teaching. Mm-hmm. And so keep yourself educated, like know what's going on in the world, listen to your students, pay attention to what's happening and make sure that that you're staying abreast of it so that you can be informed and that you can find ways to bring that, to incorporate that into your teaching. Mm-hmm. 
And let go of your ego. Leave it out the front door. There's no space for your ego um, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're holding that seat, when you're sitting in that seat of a teacher. Um, there's no space for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm curious, actually, you're, like you bring up the trauma-informed. Um, and I'm curious if there's something that you can lend that's been, either you've seen a difference with the the lending or the leaning more into the trauma informed the awareness of how prevalent how prevalent trauma is but i'm wondering if there's something that you want to share a little bit more about the trauma informed as far as doing this work and in general just holding space for people yeah, I feel like, you know, people are doing such a great job now. You know, whenever I go to a yoga class, I'm like, good job. You've been doing your work. <laughs> you know, um, you know, remember to, to offer options to, you know, to observe, to pay attention to um, to people's bodies and not looking at what they're not doing, but really focusing on what they are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and really saying, wow, it looks like you're really honoring like what your body is capable of today. And that's beautiful. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I remember I was teaching um, a class and one of my kids was just walking back and forth. Like I'm teaching like, you know, this really beautiful sequence class. I was really proud of myself. And he's just walking back and forth on his yoga and I completely ignoring <laughs> the instruction I'm giving. And I paused and I was like, you know what you're doing? I was like, you're doing walking meditation. And he was like, what? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, so what's going on? Why does it feel like this is what you want to do instead of like the postures that I'm teaching? And he said, you know, I just have a lot of energy moving through my body and it feels like the best thing to do is just to walk it out. And I'm like, yeah, beautiful. And so allow different things to be happening in your classroom. That's okay. That's okay. There's a pretty good chance they're not doing anything to undermine you or to like make you go crazy. What they're doing a lot of times is simply taking care of themselves and taking care of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of kids who had bullets that were lodged in their legs. Mm-hmm. You know, I had people that had metal rods in their spines. And mm-hmm. so they literally could not do what I was offering. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, that's that intimacy of like, wow, I've noticed that you're doing that. Is there anything else I should know, you know, and just really um, remembering to celebrate what they are doing mm-hmm. because our kids are hearing no, we're living in such a negative bias culture. Our kids, any of the vulnerable populations that we are working with, they are hearing no so much. No, you can't see your kids. No, you can't go home for Christmas. No, you, you know, you have to stay shackled while giving birth, mm-hmm. you know? No, you, you know, you know, just all the no's that come with being incarcerated. And so to be able to say yes to something that they are doing, yes, when you see them really um, having autonomy over their own bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a moment to pause and to name it and to celebrate it. You know, don't let this moment slip away because they are so precious. And if it's, if we don't recognize it, they're not going to know it for themselves. And so really um, 
keep your keep your mind, your heart, your body open, and yeah, and celebrate, folks. Well, I think that's a maybe a beautiful way to end. Um, I want to mention. <laughs> I want to thank you first of all for doing this interview and being part of the Prison Mindfulness Summit. Um, how can people find out more about your work mm. and what you're currently doing? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. So, you know, I've been, so now I'm a full-time Buddhist meditation teacher. I'm no longer um, working in jails anymore, but everything that I do, the way that I teach, um, the way that I create cultures of belonging through the stories I tell in my um, in my Dharma talks are 100% inspired by the young people um, that I taught for over um, for for 12 years. And so, if you're interested in in practicing with me um, on a retreat, um, I teach a lot at Spirit Rock out in California and all over the country. You can uh, sign up for my newsletter. So you can go to my website, lesliebooker.com, which has been under construction for about two years, but you can go there and sign up for my newsletter. And my newsletter will send you a monthly um, information about what's coming up next, what I'm doing. Um, what, what's coming up next, October 22nd, I uh, uh, supported my friend Rima Vaseli Flat in writing a book around uh, Buddhism and Black liberation. And so there are weekly conversations with Rima and other contributors to the book. So um, that'll be October 22nd uh, through Spirit Rock. Um, in January, I'll be doing a, a workshop with the Yoga Teachers Association of the Hudson Valley, so an online workshop around equanimity. So there'll be some yin yoga as well as um, Dharma talk and kind of a little retreat on equanimity. Um, and the thing that I'm most excited about and that I really hope that you join me is that I'm offering a 10-month course um, that Spirit Rock on the Paramines. And these are these perfections or attainments of heart and mind that is like the prequel to the Buddhist life. So these teachings that he um, learned in all these different uh, iterations that he was born into over eons and eons of years until he perfected them. So qualities like generosity and ethics and renunciation, patience, truthfulness, um, just to name a few. So that also will be at Spirit Rock. Um, and that's a 10-month course starting in February of 2023. So really looking at how we take our practice off the cushion and really engaging in relational practices in the world, which is um, a huge part of the way that I, the lens that I teach through. Mm. So I'm very excited about that. Mm. Me too. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our audience will be too. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really beautiful 10 months. We're really supported by the community, really supported by the Sangha. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so mm -hmm. we're not doing this alone. We're doing it with each other. Mm -hmm. That's, great. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time and, and please be well. Yeah, thank you so much to everyone. And thank you for doing the work that you're doing in the world and keep going, keep going.
thanks so much. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.